Let's look back on 1989, before the robot policeman, before the computer virus, before the new depression, the year when it all started over. Yes, life was good before robot policemen and computer viruses ruined everything. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're time-traveling with playback through the NPR archives to January 1989, when it all started over, whatever that means. NPR aired some great stuff that month, like this interview with They Might Be Giants trash-talking their album, Lincoln. It's a big disappointment that we haven't advanced more. We haven't sold that any more than we, we could have. Yeah, it's too bad they're so untalented. And speaking of which, we've got comedian Stan Freeberg, who started his career as the voice of Chester the Terrier. Hello, boy, Spike, you can do it, Spike. Come on, Spike, don't be afraid, Spike. Freeberg also played Cecil, the seasick serpent, in the animated cartoon Beanie and Cecil. I'm coming, Beanie Boy! Freeberg chats about his multifaceted career with NPR's Scott Simon. And yes, it's the inauguration of George H.W. Bush. Commentator Molly Ivins describes the pandemonium as Washington is invaded by a swarm of people pretending to be Texans. Real Texans do not wear blue slacks with little green whales all over them, and real Texans never describe trouble as deep doo-doo. Yeah, deep doo-doo, an expression George H.W. made famous. But let's begin at the beginning. The time had to come. Here's a look back at the presidency of Ronald Reagan, with reporter Alex Chadwick. People began assembling early that day. It was cold, the air cold, and the ground cold, too. So standing for any time in one place was uncomfortable. But this was history. Place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear... I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Eight years ago, before most people had heard of Oliver North, before John Hinckley, before Ed Meese, before C. Everett Koop, before the tax cuts, the Lebanon bombing, Grenada, Ronald Wilson Reagan came to Washington to become president. So help you God. So help me God. I congratulate you, sir. The Reagan years have run down to the last hours. We've asked listeners' help in summing up what Mr. Reagan has accomplished. And now we'll hear from some of those who responded. Okay, I'm Richard Murray. I live in Hutchinson, Kansas. And uh, what the Reagan presidency has meant to me is it's kind of brought some faith back into the office for me. My earliest memory of it was when Nixon resigned. Um... You know, I was only eight years old, and I wasn't quite sure what a president was. And after that, it just seems like we couldn't get a president who could move the people or get Congress to do anything. And that, that all kind of changed with Reagan. He said things that made me feel good about being American and all that and about our own government. You see, when when Jimmy Carter was president, my family, the only meat we could afford was hamburger most of the time. And after he came in, it was things got a lot better for us. That college student from Kansas wrote in praise of the president, and a letter from a sailor near Chicago began similarly. As a lower-grade enlisted man in 1978, Daniel Beck wrote, I receive $460 a month. Now an E3 makes $814.30 a month. Fewer young sailors are on food stamps. We, as a group, are better off in monetary and many other ways. 
But something else in the Reagan presidency bothered the Navy man. Ronald Reagan, I think, I think has oversimplified a lot of things, and uh, especially in his early campaigns, I, I resented a great deal uh, his remarks about welfare queens and uh, some of the implications that that made. Uh, because I was raised in a family that needed public assistance to get along for a couple of years. And I didn't see my mother as a welfare queen. President Reagan actually perpetuates a, a wrong belief that um, the poor, the unemployed, and homeless, and even the mentally ill, possibly, are that way because they choose to be. Shura Young wrote to us from Los Angeles to say the president has fashioned a crueler society. Because she had little money, the government provided health insurance. Then federal cutbacks made her and thousands of others ineligible for Medicaid benefits. When she developed hip pain, she was forced to go to an overburdened county hospital. That was generally a seven-hour wait. If you cannot wait eight-hour days, if you have a job that you can't do that, you can't take that time off, you can't get the care. That's it, you know, for people that don't have money. And from Michael Ziegler, a doctor at a medical school hospital in San Diego, which treats the poor, corroborating testimony. You see, when you want to save money on providing health care for the poor, you don't do it by going out to the poor and saying, you go away. You go out and put up another layer of paperwork, a few more requirements, another line to stand in, another bureau to go to, and then finally some people get weeded out and they disappear. But before they disappear, they get angry. The poor patients he sees are no longer angry, Dr. Ziegler reports. Those once angered and dissatisfied have given up and gone away, and those who remain are resigned to gratitude for whatever is offered them. From Toledo, Ohio, Douglas O'Brien wrote us to say that Mr. Reagan's policies have cost him money. His company sends mobile x-ray machines to patients at home. The government won't pay what it once did for services to the poor. Nonetheless, Mr. O'Brien says the president has done the right thing in this. President Reagan has succeeded in convincing a lot of his constituents in Washington that bipartisan participation in reducing the federal deficit is very important. I like to know that I have been part of this throughout the eight years by not increasing my fees and accepting the reduction in medical reimbursement. I felt that this was the moral thing to do. There were several letter writers whose lives had been devastated in the last eight years by the emergence of a deadly, terrifying new disease. Without exception, these writers were dismayed and despairing about the role played by the president. My name is Andrew Mendelson, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I'm a person with AIDS. And basically, the effect of the Reagan presidency on me personally is uh, I'm not sure that I would have AIDS if it weren't for him. I might have known enough back then, if he'd known enough to say the word AIDS six years ago, to be more careful. I might have better medical care than I do now. I might have better drugs. And I certainly would not be dealing with all the fear and misunderstanding and downright hostility that I do get, even from the medical establishment, if he'd set the tone early on in the crisis. 
as one of compassion rather than avoidance. The importance of this treaty transcends numbers. We have listened to the wisdom of, in an old Russian maxim, dovayai no provayai, trust but verify. <laughs> You repeat that at every meeting. <laughs> December 8, 1987. The day the United States and Soviet Union signed the Treaty on Intermediate Nuclear Forces. From Mark Summer in Miranda, California. Ronald Reagan taught me that politics is, above all, irony and paradox. It was Ronald Reagan who opened to the Soviet Union something, Mr. Summer suggests, a liberal Democrat would have proposed, although none of them could have accomplished it. Does it mean, he asks, that those favoring progressive solutions to this nation's and the world's ills must vote for retrograde candidates in the knowledge that, in the curious world of politics, wrong sometimes makes right? A number of active-duty servicemen and women wrote us, among them Commander Nat Malcolm, Jr., a supply officer stationed at the Charleston Naval Base in South Carolina. As a professional military officer, I particularly appreciate the level of respect and dignity that President Reagan has returned to my profession. I had a very bad personal experience being abandoned, in a sense, in Bushir, Iran in 1979. When the Shah fell in Iran during the Carter administration, the commander was part of a small American military contingent in the southern part of the country. Malcolm says the failures of the Carter administration forced him and the others to hide for 10 days. And finally, in embarrassment, they threw away their uniforms, denied their true nationality, and snuck out of the country as German diplomatic dependents. As you might imagine, that was a pretty damning experience for me. And the change in pride with which I wear my uniform is very marked. And I think an awful lot of my compatriots will agree with me in that score. I'm Joe Stoflug, a uh, telecommunications engineer in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, Ronald Reagan killed my little brother. He was a, one of the Marines in Beirut and uh, was killed with 240 of his fellow Marines and seamen when a terrorist truck bombed their headquarters. And uh, this was a needless tragedy. They were there on what seemed to me and my family's President Reagan's personal whim. He disregarded his uh, experts, Secretary of Defense and uh, Chiefs of Staff, and um, went ahead with this flawed policy as a political gesture. I really hope I never hear his voice again. It, it just sends chills um, through my blood. To us, his, his administration has been largely um, ignorant and arrogant, and um, I, I hope he um, has nothing more to do with the American future. President Reagan has changed my life in that he has made it more optimistic. Nina Wolf lives with her schoolteacher husband and seven children in Homer, Alaska. We were in the type of economic bracket where the tax break did make a difference. It was not a tremendous amount. I think initially the first break was like around $35 a month with, you know, continued tax breaks where we got a little bit more. And it wasn't a great deal, but for a family my size, it made a, a big difference because I do have a large family. You said that uh, the president has given you a feeling of hope. Can you explain that a little? Well, I guess it was just under the previous administration. I like Jimmy Carter, but for some reason, 
I think that there was a bit of despair in the country because of the terrible inflation. And when Reagan took over, it seemed that that despair sort of dispelled across the whole nation. And I think I certainly felt it in my own life. From Pine Bush, New York, a letter from Peter Lovey. He did not vote for Mr. Reagan in 1980, he told us. The president first won his approval, Mr. Lovey says, when he fired the air traffic controllers after they went on strike in 1981. He thinks that's when the Reagan economic recovery actually began. Before that, I had probably gone along with the perception of uh, Mr. Reagan as a, as an amiable, uh, a pleasant presenter of views that were perhaps not his own. But the firing of the air traffic controllers, it was such almost a revelation to me because I could not have imagined any politician doing that sort of thing. It seemed such a risky move to take. I would listen to the news and so many of the experts would come on and they'd say, skies are going to be deadly, the system is going to utterly fall apart, and he's going to be forced to back down and he's going to lose credibility, and this is really just going to be a disaster for his presidency. He hung tough, and it certainly changed my perception of the man and uh, the office of the presidency. If you stand long enough at the back fence of the White House, sooner or later the president will emerge. He walks to a Marine Corps helicopter. It's January in Washington, late in the day, but he's not wearing an overcoat. He waves at the cameras. Is he waving at the fence, too, and the onlookers? It's too far to tell. But even so far away, he is there, actual, real, existing. And those who love Ronald Reagan and those who hate him seem to share this sense of intimate connection with him, and there is something astonishing in the simple physical fact of his presence. Reporter Alex Chadwick. Entering stage left, George Herbert Walker Bush, introduced here by Bob Edwards. Tomorrow's inauguration will be the event here in Washington. Some streets already are blocked, reviewing stands are in place, and TV cameras are everywhere. Commentator Molly Ivins is a columnist for the Dallas Times-Herald. She reminds Texans that the eyes of Washington are upon them. Seems like all the snoots on the East Coast have got their bowels in an uproar over how Texans are about to take over Washington again. They've been calling to inquire if we plan to wear satin western wear and diamond-studded cowboy boots to the inaugural galas. It appears Washington has not yet recovered from the last time a horde of Visigoths from the great state descended on the Potomac, led by that horrible head hun, Lyndon. Folks, don't worry. Be happy. These Texans are not going to show you the scars from their gallbladder operations. George Bush is Yale 48, Jim Baker, Princeton 52, Bob Mossbacker, Washington and Lee, class of 47, and John Tower thinks he's British and that Wichita Falls was just an hallucination. Culturally, these people are not Texans. Now, you understand there are no citizenship requirements here. It's not like it's an exclusive deal. Texans by choice are just as good as Texans by birth. We try to keep in mind that almost everyone who died at the Alamo was from out of state originally. But still, we do have some standards. Real Texans do not use the word summer as a verb. Real Texans do not wear blue slacks with little green whales all over them. And real Texans never describe trouble as deep doo-doo. 
What we're sending to Washington is a bunch of displaced preppies. Not to say there's not some Texan to them. After all, none of these people is vegetarian, and they all like guns. But mostly, Texans do not think of this as a Texas deal. How they think of it was probably best put by a guy named Carlos Ashley from Llano, who was in the state senate and wrote cowboy poetry. We called him the poet lariat of the legislature. Here is a poem he wrote on inaugurations. Oh, the glamour and the clamour that attend affairs of state seem to fascinate the rabble, and to some folks seem just great. But when the final scale is balanced in the field of loss and gain, not one inauguration's worth a good slow two-inch rain. This is Molly Ivins talking to you from Texas. And now a little more levity from NPR's Scott Simon. Stan Freeberg was once characterized in the pages of the New York Times as the Che Guevara of advertising. That description keeps reappearing in all succeeding profiles of Mr. Freeberg. It may be more apt to say, however, that if Che Guevara had ever hired someone to handle his advertising, it might well have been Stan Freeberg. Mr. Freeberg is the man who put the eight great tomatoes in the itty-bitty Contadina can. He reinvigorated musical satire and reinvented radio comedy, demonstrating what radio could accomplish that television could not. Okay, people, and now when I give you the cue, I want the 700-foot mountain of whipped cream to roll into Lake Michigan, which has been drained and filled with hot chocolate. Then the Royal Canadian Air Force will fly overhead towing a 10-ton maraschino cherry, which will be dropped into the whipped cream for the cheering of 25,000 extras. All right, cue the mountain. Now, you want to try that on television? The first 40 years or so of Stan Freeberg's life is the subject of his first autobiography. It only hurts when I laugh. It's just been published by Times Book, and Stan Freeberg joins us in the studio. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Nice to be here. Well, that's a nice introduction. <clears throat> no, well, we can we can get rid of that now that. Uh huh. Well, that you know the the the, um, the Che Guevara. Uh, yeah. I guess the, what the man meant was that I was a revolutionary. I mm-hmm. think that's what he probably had in mind. You're the son of a Baptist preacher, right? And I have read that that you believe you might be all the funnier because of that. It, it probably helped me to become not just a comedian but a satirist, which is a different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. Satirists try to correct things in society by, you, you know, pointing up our weaknesses and foibles. And I just think that my father instilled in me uh, a finely tuned moral outrage. When were you first aware of the fact that you made people laugh? In high school. You used to do and, shows in high school. Uh, I was discouraged from writing humor by a creative writing teacher. Mm-hmm. She said I was too bombastic and so forth. Anyhow, the first time I heard an audience laughing at what I had written, it occurred to me that the woman was full of art gummy racers, and uh, I went on from there, you know. Now, right after high school, you began to do voices for cartoons. Yeah. And, and well, I, I did voices for the great Mel Blanc and uh, yeah. dozens and dozens of cartoons, and uh, I, I, I see my hear myself coming out of various animals on Saturday morning. I did all the uh, the extraneous characters that Mel didn't do. Yeah. There was a little dog named Chester that kept running and leaping over this big dog, Spike. And it's, yeah. all that Spike did is go like this. 
And, and the little dog I did, it went, Attaboy, Spike, you can do a Spike. Come on, Spike. Don't be afraid, Spike. You, know. you, you were a puppeteer on what was apparently Albert Einstein's favorite television show. It was called Time for Beanie, and uh, it later became, in another incarnation, uh, yeah. Beanie and Cecil. It was animated then, but I was on five days a week, 52 weeks a year, and um, for five years. And uh, we got a letter from a nuclear physicist at Caltech who said, I just thought you'd like to know that I was attending a meeting with Dr. Albert Einstein present. Finally, Einstein pulled out his large gold pocket watch, stood up, and said, You will have to excuse me, gentlemen. It's time for Beanie, and shuffled out of the room. He had a little apartment at Caltech that we lived on the campus there in the <laughs> yeah. last years of his life. Were you Beanie, by the way? No, I was Cecil the Sea Serpent. I'm coming, Beanie boy! And also, eh, 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 eh. I'm Dishonest John, the world's meanest crumb. And a few other, uh -huh. Tear Along the Dotted Lion was uh, another great character. Yeah. Anyway. We sent a, a page out the other day here at National Public Radio for mm -hmm. Stan Freeberg aficionados to bring us copies of your records, copies of your tapes. Uh -huh. These are the kind of things that at this point have been saved for, for generations and are being passed between the generations from from our parents to us and now in some cases to our children. Gosh, you, you're making this sound like the last scene in Ray Bradbury's movie Fahrenheit 451 where they're <laughs> The people have <laughs> memorized the books and yes. they're passing on. <laughs> One guy has learned James Joyce and the other guy has yeah, exactly. learned. What we're going to hear now is a clip from John and Marcia. Oh, fine. John! Marcia! John! Marcia! John! This was like 1948, after I got out of the Army, and uh, this is before I did Beanie. And um, I just thought, uh, would it be nice to do a soap opera in which uh, we hear all the emotions uh, of a soap opera, but they never say anything but each other's names. And so I did both voices, of course. And Both those voices are oh, yes, you? Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Marsha. So you took two names and made a whole scene out of them. Yeah, I did. And uh, it became uh, my first uh, record for Capital, which was also my first hit record. It was a hit, took off. Uh -huh. So strange. It was the strangest record anybody had ever heard. And uh, I liked that. I mean, I like always breaking new ground if I possibly can. Let me ask you about Stan Freeberg's history of the United States. Yeah. I want to ask you first about the bit entitled Take an Indian to Lunch. Take an Indian to lunch this week Show him we're a regular bunch this week Show him we're as liberal as can be Let him know he's almost as good as we Make a feathered friend feel fed That was my uh, commentary on the stuffed shirt liberal. You know, especially on let him know he's almost as good as we and um, uh, anyhow, I, I, I knew that the Indians, I always knew the Indians would understand. 
that song and the album. I never knew that the Indians would love the album as much as they do. It became a very popular song in Native American communities. Absolutely. To, to this day. To, to this day. In yeah. fact, that's the beautiful thing to me is when you can not only be funny but make some social point. I mean, that's the whole point of satire is to, yeah. is to try and... Uh, bring out some social excess, uh, yeah. e even if it's only uh, letting a little of the air out of somebody that's uh, or some institution that takes itself too seriously. Is, is some of that what, what drove you into advertising? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went into advertising not as a advertising person, but as a an outraged consumer. Mm -hmm. For years, I sat in my living room at night and uh, rode in my car, listening to uh, and watching. Uh, advertising uh, that insulted me and uh, bored me and irritated me and insulted my intelligence mainly. Mm -hmm. So I figured there must be a better way to reach me. I was the consumer that I knew best. So I figured if mm -hmm. ever a chance came to do advertising, I would do it the way I had wished somebody had been doing it for me all these years. Tell me a bedtime story, Daddy. All right. I'll tell you a mighty story. I don't want a mighty story. I just want to hear about Goldilocks and the... Once upon a time, there was a great nation which had to face a great problem. But because its people were endowed with great wisdom and ingenuity, they were able to somehow come to grips with it. That problem, how to get the pits out of the prunes. Can you give me that again? So that if you ask what makes America great, I can only answer, her greatness can be summed up in three words. Sun sweet... Pitted prunes. You're putting me on. Have you ever handled a political candidate? I mean, I, I know you have handled political accounts, <clears throat> like the McGovern-Hatfield Amendment or something. But... Yeah, that was a thing. That, the only political thing I ever did, a piece of activism, was to help try to help us uh, legislate us out of Vietnam by mm -hmm. cutting off all money to Southeast Asia. And if that bill had gone through in 1971, we would have been out uh, a lot sooner. And I'll mm -hmm. tell about that in my next book, and I don't want to tip okay. it now, but it was... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, it involves the plumbers went into my hotel room and a lot of things like that. In the National League. Turning now from baseball to Vietnam, what's the score Indochina-wise, Harv? Well, Ed, the old casualty list looks pretty promising. As opposed to three years ago when our deaths from hostile action in Vietnam was right up around a thaw a week, late figures from the Pentagon show we've got it down to only 38 American deaths a week, which is, to this reporter's thinking... A pretty good batting average for the old visiting team, huh? 38 American boys killed in Vietnam a week? Why, listen, that's terrific. Who said we didn't know how to wind a war down? Any predictions on when we'll really be out of their head? Well, who can call the shots on that? The United States Congress has a chance to, with your help. The Senate is about to vote on setting a date for a complete withdrawal from this nightmare so that an end to the fighting and the return of all prisoners is allowed to become a reality. Send a telegram in support of the McGovern-Hatfield Amendment or call now to your senator and congressman in Washington. Irresponsible demonstrations will not move them, but you may. Why is a man with your talent for satire yes. and characterization mm -hmm. doing commercials? Is that misusing at some level your great gift? Possibly, but I don't think so. In other words, I thought maybe I could prove a point to Madison Avenue that advertising mm -hmm. didn't have to necessarily be nauseous, irritating, and worst of all, boring to work at the mm -hmm. point of sale and, and sell the product. So that's why I started to do it to prove a point. And then it became a real challenge to me, and mm -hmm. it was a movement, you know. I mean, uh, in my book I say it was like a Frank Lloyd Wright building suddenly thrust up overnight in a sea of Victorian architecture. So that was a very exhilarating thing to have mm -hmm. happened, to 
a guy who never went to the Harvard Business School, never had any com- professional training in advertising, a, a consumer, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'd be, I felt like Ralph Nader had been hired by General Motors to design some cars. I mean, that's really what I felt like. Mr. Freeberg, it's been it's been very nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, Scott. And okay. um, I hope you have me back again. When you have me back, I'll tell you a story uh-huh. about National Public Radio and John DeLorean that will be in my next book. At <laughs> 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 oh. the end of this book is I'm the first guy. I don't, I don't think I... we'd be interested in that, Mr. Freeberg. Oh, no. Well, okay. He has well. to go to another appointment now, right? Oh, I'm sorry. We're all out of time. <laughs> the mic Scott Simon with comedian Stan Freeberg. And now, Miss Terry Gross presents a rock duo that was not exactly a household name in 1989. They Might Be Giants is a New York-based rock band that got its start playing in the clubs and performance spaces of downtown Manhattan. But it's the exposure on MTV that's bringing in the pre-teen crowds to the duo's out-of-town concerts. Music critic Peter Watrous described their performances as having an overlay of humor masking deep thinking. They Might Be Giants is John Flansburg on guitar and vocals and John Linnell on vocals, saxophones, accordion, banjo, and other instruments. Their first album, They Might Be Giants, included 19 songs. Their new album, Lincoln, has 18 songs on it. But they've written hundreds of other songs that haven't made it onto record. They figured out another way of getting them out to the public. Tell me why you started Dial a Song. Well, uh, it was before we were making records, so we were really thinking in terms of um, just the audience, the small New York audience that we had. And we, John actually broke his wrist, and I had a lot of stuff stolen in the same week. And so all of a sudden there was this... We knew we weren't, weren't going to be able to perform live for a few months at least, and we had all these songs that we really wanted to get out to the public. So in order to hold on to those 35 people who were truly interested in what we were doing, we figured we'd start the Dial-A-Song service, which um, basically it's just a phone machine in my house. We don't really make any money off it or anything. It's just a, a different song every day, and uh, now it's been going for like four years, so it's, it's, a, it's a raging success. You've gone from being a pretty fringy band to now being prominently featured on MTV. What changed? Did something change in your music, or is it ju- just that more people we're, started to notice? No, we're just prominently fringy. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, well, you know, we're, we basically make the same, you know, the exact same kind of music that yeah, I, we've always made. I think if you listen to the records, they—I mean, the records haven't really. The, the record, second record, isn't radically different from the first record. In fact, it's a big disappointment yeah. that we haven't. Advance more. And we haven't artistic sold out vision. any more than we we could have. We, we I, you know, really, I think we've just uh, we've been lucky because we got a lot of you know exposure from MTV, which is really the only national media that we could get to, I and mean, we're not played on commercial radio by and large. So, um, you know, it just it just you just realize the power of 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 national media. The song that's getting the most airplay on MTV is Anna Eng. Um, you want to say anything about writing that song? Uh, well, it's basically a sort of connect the dots kind of song that start started with the Manhattan phone book. And I noticed one day that there's 
something like three pages of um, people named NG in, in the phone book. And I called up some of them to find out how it was pronounced and uh, started kind of winding a song around that idea. And then basically the, the idea of the guy shooting the gun through the globe came from a Pogo comic strip where the, one of the characters does that to find out what the other side of the world is, which point is exactly opposite uh, the Okefenokee Swamp. Make a hole with a gun perpendicular to the name of this town in a desktop globe. Exit wound in a foreign nation showing the home of the one this was written for. My apartment looks upside down from there. Water spirals the wrong way out the sink. And her voice is a backwards record. It's like a whirlpool and it never ends. And her anger and I are getting old and we still haven't walked in the glow of each other's majestic presence. Listen in and hear my words to the ones you would think I would say if there was a me for you. All alone. Now there's only the two of you. And uh, John Linnell, you play accordion and, and lots of instruments. And John Flansburg, you play guitar. And what you do frequently is do an arrangement on tape and then bring the tape with you as a backup track yeah. for when you record in concert. Yeah, that's invariably what we do when we perform live. I mean, that's our, that's our live show. So, And it's something that puts people off when they hear about it, but it really isn't as boring yeah. as it sounds. Yeah. I think people sort of go into a coma when they hear that you know you're going to that you have a track show i mean either they're thinking of like you know some Vicky Sue Robinson lip sync concert that they saw in <laughs> right. 1978 or some like english band with really you know hard to imagine hair you know doing like some song where like they're playing instruments on stage and the same sounds are coming out of the pa but it's not the appropriate like moves like the you know the drummer is spinning at the same time that they're doing a drum roll <laughs> so you know i mean basically we're not trying to like fake anybody out you know it's a very direct very uh, non-illusionistic kind of use of tape but you know basically you know this sh the show has got it it ranges from just simple accompaniment like one voice one instrument to the tape you know doing some raging you know rock drum thing and and then you know like really distorted guitars and and you know accordion and lots of both of us like screaming our heads off so it really it, there's a real broad dynamic quality to the to the show you know you're also one of the few rock bands i can think of that's doing novelty songs and one of the songs that comes to mind is a uh, shoehorn with teeth hmm. which has you know kind of absurd lyrics and and yeah. I, I think a terrific arrangement but it really is a novelty song. Well, you should see us wincing here when you say that oh, it's a uh, no novelty song. <laughs> well, this is coming um, from someone who really likes novelty you, songs. Yeah, you really I, hurt my feelings did when I, you did said I? that. I think if, if, if this were 40 years ago or, or maybe we're on a different planet, we wouldn't be so uncomfortable with the idea of novelty song. But it, it's come to mean something fairly trivial. And I, I think, you know, I think it's, I think our songs are novel. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's, in other words, a, a novelty song conjures up the idea of a sort of a, a fairly facile joke that that uh, gets kind of laid out in, in the course of a few choruses. Um, whereas I, I don't think "Shoehorn with Teeth" is a very explicable song. It's a funny song, but it's it's hard to explain what it's about. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. People should get beat up for stating their beliefs. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. Cause he knows there's no such thing 
He asks a girl if they can both sit in a chair, but he doesn't get nervous. She's not really there. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. A lot of the music that you both play is bathed in irony, and I was... Dipped in irony. Oh, yeah, ex- uh, yeah, excuse me. I think it's, it's better um, and I was wondering why, why, uh, why you're so comfortable with, with irony and if there were rock poses that you think rock bands are supposed to take that you just really can't get serious because about. Because we're snarling, angry people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we, we probably you know, would like to shake off some of the irony in our songs if, you know, if it were possible to be, to be at least perceived as being more sincere because a lot of the stuff that we do, I think, has the form of irony. In fact, is is trying to be serious and trying mm-hmm. to be sincere. Give me an and, example. Uh, well, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't, I mean, I, I think, for example, the thing about Shoehorn with Teeth is it sounds like there's some kind of joke going on. And in fact, it's just a, a set of words that, you know, came to mind. And it's not really, a, in other words, it's not a trying to annihilate something or be a parody of something. Yeah, I think a lot of people misconstrue, especially the musical forms of what we're doing. They think we're somehow, um, uh, you know, making a commentary on the kind of musical forms that we use. When in fact, you know, I think, I mean, just the idea of playing musical the music that you don't like. If you don't like country and western, you don't want to dedicate your life towards like making fun of it. And that's, I think, you know, we have songs that have, you know, country and western tinges to them and it's because we like that kind of music and it speaks to us i never saw the movie they might be giants but uh, i I assume you named your group after Mm -hmm. the movie Uh, how come you named your group that uh well we really like the name and i i I wouldn't want to say anything about the movie beyond that that in other words it wasn't the movie itself that made us decide to name them ourselves uh, they might be giants because it's really not uh, the movie doesn't really have much to do with the band. It just right? seemed like a good paranoid name, you know. It's just yeah. Like, it's it's a, basically the name of the band is, is applies to, in other words, they in the name represent something external. It's not us, which uh, unfortunately is not the impression a lot of people have gotten. So um, does everybody get the name of your band wrong who doesn't know the movie? Like maybe they're giants or maybe a- they a- may be giants. or a- they gods? <laughs> yeah. yeah, somebody called up uh, the record company and said, do you... Uh, have ain't they gods <laughs> okay thanks to both of you john and john well thank you thanks terry john flansberg and john linnell their new album lincoln is on bar none records and you can reach dial a song by calling area code 718-387-6962 I'm Kat Arsman, the research and development intern and right now we're going to try calling dial a song and see what happens you have reached. Sorry, this mailbox is full. It can't receive any more messages. Please call again later. Okay, so we called 25 years later, but like, whatever. Who's counting? And yes, that was a network debut of Miss Cat Arsiment, who helped us find all those great stories this month. Hats off to Miss Cat. Thank you for listening to Bay Might Be Giants. We do have a dial a song service at 718-387-6962. Thank you. And special thanks go out to NPR's very own Franz Osario. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback. I like to play the drums. I think I'm getting...